Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Hatley Post. This Insight episode comes from full episode 41 with Cassandra Brooks. Cassandra is an assistant professor of environmental studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and her research helped drive the adoption of the world's largest marine protected area in the Ross Sea, Antarctica. Cassandra spoke with Michael and Courtney about the lengthy process of getting the Ross Sea protected and the complicated sphere of international geopolitics within the Antarctic. This is the In Common Podcast. Um, I'm, I kind of want to switch gears and ask you about marine protected areas because we've been skirting around that for a while. Um, well, I mean, that's your work. That's what you work on. So it seems obvious to ask you about that. Um, it seems really... It's impressive and amazing that you were able to help push through this, you know, contribute to getting the Ross Sea protected. And it seems like lately now you're switching to kind of bigger scale, thinking more broadly on Antarctica. And I'm wondering how being in involved in this policy space, how how are policymakers responding to your work? What does that relationship look like and how are you working to inform that? Oh, that's a good question. It's such a hard, <laughs> I feel like even though I'm like knowing the space now, it's it's equally hard. Um, with the Ross Sea, I mean, we, I mentioned uh, my now husband started this project, The Last Ocean. He was working really closely with an Antarctic scientist. Um, and that whole process, we pulled in a filmmaker from New Zealand. You know, we worked, we worked with with governments, we worked with, we worked with hundreds of scientists, all these different conservation groups. And that took 12 years. Um, that that work right so so it just and I even remember the year it happened and and uh and by then I was in the room um sitting on the delegation observer delegation for the conservation groups and and I brought my husband or my my husband John came that year too and and I just remember even the stress of being in the room when it happened there, there were two week meetings that happened down in Australia and Hobart um and uh Hobart Tasmania and and all these countries come together and they sit they sit at this table and they you know have discussions for weeks at a time. And, and it was like the end of the meeting, I was getting to the end of the two weeks and we still didn't have consensus. They make decisions based on unanimous consensus. So everybody has to agree. And it's just like, I just remember the chair would come back and be like, Oh, I think we're there. We have blah, blah, blah. And then a country would raise their flag and boom, we're like, Nope, we don't have it. And, and I'll never forget the moment we got it. And, and the chair finally came back and he's like, we have consensus and every country agreed and everybody stood up and they were, you know, applauding and hugging each other. And some of the scientists were crying and we were crying, of course, in the back of the room. It was like (laughs) such an amazing moment. uh, One of the most amazing moments in my life. And I think because it showed that while it took so much time and so much effort um, from so many different countries and groups and scientists, it showed that that we can do these huge conservation efforts, right? It actually showed that we can do it and we can do it in in these crazy remote places, even when they're in, in the Ross Sea one is still the largest marine protected area in the world. And and we feel we do feel really, really great about that. And I think it gave us hope that that we can do this kind of work, right? <laughs> elsewhere in Antarctica, elsewhere in the world, um, in the international waters and whatnot. And uh, and so that's, I guess now um, I still sit in the room at Camlar. I'm now on a sort of um, scientific um, scientific uh, body delegation, still an observer group, but we get to bring forward science um, to to the different governments, uh, trying to sort of 
you know, help, help and making decisions based on science. So I get to be in the room, which I feel like helps tremendously. Um, I still try to do research that informs the science process. I try to do research that informs the policy process. Um, and I do, yeah, I try to do <laughs> communication as well around it. And I work really closely with the conservation groups in the room. Um, and I work closely with, with um, some of the governments in the room. And I think that's, that's what you need to do, right, is actually work across everything. And, um, and I do feel like it's really hard. I mean, politically, we're in a really hard time in the world. I mean, even COVID-19 aside, um, internationally, it's, it's uh, I feel like we're in this dynamic space where, and Antarctica is a lot of like kind of old boys club, like it used to be, you know, the US and the UK and Russia, and they were all in power. And now China's being more vocal, other countries are being more vocal, the EU is very powerful. So we're in this state of flux, um, which makes it a fascinating space to study, but I think a frustrating space to try to work in and to, to make progress conservation wise. Cassandra, can you tell us what this CAMLAR entity is? Because I think a lot of people yes. actually won't know. Sure, sure. Yeah. So so the um, the group that makes decisions around the Southern Ocean, the terrible acronym for it is CAMLAR, and that's the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. And they have um, 26 different members. Uh, that includes the EU. And yeah, they make decisions by consensus uh, all around for, for the Southern Ocean. So they're the multinational body that governs the Southern Ocean. So as you were talking, Cassandra, it was about these like countries that are posturing and bringing all their attitude or baggage. <laughs> I don't know. As they do, it made yeah. me think of, you know, how you started talking about fishermen, you know, and like That's the right. identities of these individual fishermen and you've like switched scales dramatically. Yes. Um, but it seems like those same sort of dynamics are at play. Yeah. I love, I love that. Um, and I, I do. I do so think that that's true. Like, and, and the way I guess you could think about it is like, they're all, they're all gathering. It's this international space. So there's that level of like the international relations and people peacekeeping and diplomatic stuff. And then there's that level of like national interests, right. And some countries want to fish there and some countries want to, you know, do conservation there and whatnot. And then there's that level of like the individual in the room. And this is what fascinated me when I was actually studying the Rossi piece of it of seeing how much, specific individuals could divide like be tremendously divisive and specific individuals could could create trust and create like facilitate this whole process i mean one of the um there's some really key people with the ross sea um george waters is one of them he works actually with noah in the united states and and people really trusted him and 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 appreciated him and he had worked in the camlar space for a long time and and it just was it was like fascinating to me how much like that one person could help drive that process, right? And that wasn't through bullying, and that wasn't through geopolitics, that was through being a scientist and a human being <laughs> that people sincerely trusted and, and got along with and, and wanted to share that space with. And, and I think that, that that is really important because again, it's a lot of people are like, oh, it's all international relations or it's all geopolitics, it's all national incentives. But I think a lot of it too is that trust between individuals in the room and they're, and they're meeting like goes back to all the literature we know, they're meeting face-to-face -face multiple times a year. Um, for some, some of these scientists have been going for 30 years, like repeat, wow. right? Like they're just sharing the space together. And, uh, and I think that, that that makes a huge difference, you know? Really cool. Courtney, I love that question, right? I mean, because it's, there's a lot of things to try to tie together here. I mean, I think it's interesting that there's, right, there's academic communities that study community-based natural resource management. There's other international IR folks and we have this division by scale, but at the end of the day, it's going to be like a bunch of folks in a room. Yes, <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. And they're going to be talking about some stuff that's going to happen. A different and scale. So I've always, yeah. A different scale. <laughs> like, exactly. But it's still a bunch of folks. It still matters who they are. Their personalities still matter. Um, I've always found it just like a little bit artificial that, you know, there's some, actually been some research that asks, like, can we apply lessons from like small scale systems to large scale systems? And I haven't like broadcast this too loudly, but in my head, I'm like, yes, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> Is it people? All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, I, a follow up question I'd love to ask, um, just to piggyback on Courtney's question, which I loved is, you know, you mentioned earlier that so much depends on personality with the Fishers and now we're back to, okay, so much of this depends on personality again, this really charismatic person. Mm -hmm. Does that present a challenge for learning from this case and trying to apply what worked worked in this case to other cases? Yeah. Or if assuming you agree that that might be a worthwhile goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought a lot about that um, because I think, as far as case studies go, right? Like, I, I did this pretty extreme case study. It was like in Antarctica around protected areas. Um, this this one one multinational body does it apply to anything anywhere? Um, and I think I think it does. I think it does in the sense of having again to work at that intersection of science and public and the policy, I think uh, understanding that um, incentives drive everything and finding those sort of levers of influence. I think the thing that's more complicated at the international scale is, is again, I think working across those three levels between international relations, you know, national interests, and then the individuals in the room. And, and maybe that's one of the big differences at a smaller scale. Maybe it's a lot more about the individuals where I think at the international scale, those individuals are still bound by their national governments who are still bound by these international treaties. And so it kind of right. creates this, um, you know, they, they, they're working across those levels, but I think sometimes they're bound by, by what they, they just don't have the power to do. So maybe the power, the power comes in, piece comes in a lot more um, in those, like, I guess those institutional arrangements that are going across those different scales. So but I do, I think, I think there's a lot we can learn about these lessons. I, you know, and, and I talked to a lot of people about the, the high seas, the international waters that, that account for 70% of the global oceans. And, and there's a new treaty being negotiated for our international waters and potentially to, to set up uh, protected areas there. And I think that is such a harder case because you're talking about, you know, hundreds of countries, <laughs> or, you know, uh, or 196, I forget exactly how many are part of that agreement, but it's, it's almost 200 countries, right, versus, um, you know, 20 something. And I think that that if you're trying to align incentives and levers of influence across that, that sort of um, multinational level, that seems like a lot harder. Same thing with the United Nations uh, climate change agreements, right? Like these are, I think, a lot harder to work in. So, so I'd love to follow up on that and ask specifically why, <laughs> because, or to dig in a little bit more on why. I mean, you sort of just described it a little bit, but yeah. you know, you think of Antarctica as being, like part of what makes it so difficult is that it's this really international place, yep. but, and nobody's there. So, yep. you know, people have weird claims to it. Totally. <laughs> um, but if you get into, you know, the high seas or other marine protected areas that are contested between two countries or, um, Maybe, maybe what's challenging there, but also what do you see as opportunities? Like, what do you see as the, mm. you know, the, the cases for we can make this happen and we can, um, I mean, cause it's, uh, I was reading some of your papers, um, preparing for this and, it, and talking about how, you know, these big marine protected areas are really working. Mm -hmm. So how, how can we do that more? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, 
I think in terms of the barrier, so Antarctica is a pretty unique space and that, like you said, you have these, um, no, no people live there. So you don't, you're not sort of dealing with um, indigenous peoples and rights. Um, you're not, a lot of the uses are, it's just fishing, tourism, science, really. Those are the main uses. Mining is banned. Um, sovereignty is suspended. Military uses are banned. Nuclear, anything is banned. So a lot of activities are just straight out banned. Um, and instead of having, you know, 200 countries involved, you only have in the treaty. So the treaty governs the continent and deals with suspending nuclear, nuclearization, military, mining. And that has 53 different countries that get to make decisions. The oceans have 26, as I mentioned. And so it's pretty small. It's a pretty small group of countries. And part of that is that the agreement to be part of of these uh, international treaties is that you have to actually work in Antarctica. And so that's a financial barrier for so many countries, right? Um, and maybe you just have a seasonal base, but you have to be doing some work down there. Um, so that really puts decision-making in the hands of a smaller number of countries and arguably an elite, um, an elite group that, that you know, uh, some, some geopolitical scholars would say that Antarctic countries love that. They're like, yes, we are the small group of countries that get to be in power and control this space. And the history is huge there. I mean, these old explorers that were planting flags and, and all these historical claims that countries made, they're all suspended. The claims are suspended. It's an international space, but the claims remain real to the countries that, that made them. And so what you end up having is actually countries who are very, very vested in maintaining a presence in Antarctica. And they really, I mean, they really care about keeping their science operations and keeping keeping a presence there and, and having Antarctica be this place of peace and science um, that still is nuclear free and all of that. So it means a lot to the countries that work there. So you have opportunities for leadership, I think, in Antarctica that maybe you don't have in other places or where you wouldn't have the same motivation because you're not looking to sort of protect your long-term slice of the pie, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I, think, I think that might be part of it is that geopolitics ends, ends up driving um, conservation in kind of a cool way ends up driving peace as well and and that diplomacy that happens um, in Antarctica that I don't know that happens in other spaces at the same time it points to the opportunity that you could have when countries do take leadership on issues and and that's that's a huge thing anywhere right like if you actually have individuals <laughs> and countries willing to to um, step up and and be a leader and be a voice in the world that that can make a huge difference and and again that that might be part of the mess that globally it feels like we're in right now is that there's um, there's certainly poor leadership around some of the big issues in the world. So, and it seems like one of those that we haven't mentioned is climate change. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which I presume is going to be a big challenge in Antarctica. And yeah, it's terrible in Antarctica. I mean, we had the um, hottest summer on record in in Antarctica this year, um, and just even in my experience. Um, I was back there in November, December um, of this last year, and, and I went to an area of the peninsula that I hadn't been in like 15 years, and, and even just in my period of time going there, I couldn't believe the changes I had seen. My daughter is named Adeli, after the Adeli penguin, and I'm on this trip, and like she kept saying, send me a picture of Adeli's mom, and we didn't see any, and they're one of the species that are just moving south they need cold waters um but you know they'll get to a point where they can't move further south like they simply just can't and so they're doing okay in areas that are staying cold but in areas around the antarctic peninsula which are rapidly warming um these penguins are just being driven out by by now other species and at the same time you just could see 
the drastic reductions in ice that are happening. And this is causing, you know, impacts throughout the whole ecosystem in terms of uh, productivity and krill. Um, and krill are the thing that everything feeds on. Like, like Antarctic krill are one of the most abundant um, animals on the planet. According to some estimates, they are the most abundant. And whales come from all over the world to feed on krill in Antarctica. And, and they feed all the, the seals and the penguins and a lot of the fish. And so they're this critical piece that um, we're seeing major changes happening in. And the hard thing is it's hard to know it's hard to know what, you know, what is within the normal range or, you know, and, and what's, um, what's new. And I think that's one of the biggest things we're all struggling with is, is what's, what's happening because of climate change, even what's happening because of fishing, what's happening because of increased tourism. Um, and how do you, how do you manage for all those things? And, and my thing would be, it's, it's cumulative. We have all these things happening at once. We know the system is changing. And that, that's where I end up pushing for protected areas, right? Because we know if we at least reduce fishing effort and reduce human impacts, that the system can be more resilient to environmental change. This will only work for so long in Antarctica, and it will only work if we're actually working with other institutions and reducing you know, our emissions and, and all those other pieces. But I think it gives the system the best chance of being resilient if we actually um, close it off to other human impacts. So. Thanks for tuning in. The In Common Podcast is a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To explore more episodes of the podcast, as well as our blog, visit our website at www.incommonpodcast.org. Here you will also find a list of the members of our recently expanded team, as well as a link to our Patreon page, where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter at InCommonPod. Thanks again.